This morning's scripture is from Galatians chapter 6, verses 5 through 10. For each will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit, no, that's not good. But the one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Sorry about that. (laughs) All right. Are we good? All right. So... Uh, next week is our last sermon in, from Galatians. Um, it's been like, I think this is like number 29. So it's been, it's been a good run. It's been nice. Um, so let's, let's pray and let's get into our passage. Father, we love you. We thank you for, for allowing us to gather here. Thank you for these people. Thank you for, uh, the community that we find here. Um, and the, uh, the unity and the love that we share. Uh, I ask that you would fashion us and you would make us into what you want us to be. That these times when we come together to sort of celebrate what's going on throughout the week and celebrate what's going on in our lives and to just spend some time to just center everything that it, all of our lives upon you, even if it's just for a few minutes, I pray that you would give us something in this. That this, uh, that this ritual would, would, uh, would be blessed. Um, we want desperately for more of our life to look like this, like, like the entire thing is revolving around focusing on you. And so may this ritual of, of gathering together and, and reading your word, may this um, become more of our daily life, that every day um, we would have hearts and thoughts and, and songs and all that centered upon you as we move throughout this world. Um, so strengthen us, make us, make us present, um, teach us something we need to see, convict us, and change us. In your name, amen. All right, is this thing on? Can you hear me? Okay, good. I just, my ears aren't working, I don't know. All right, so we're going to start right here. Um, I'm totally going to turn around and just bump into this thing and knock it over, so let me rearrange the furniture. Okay, um, so Galatians 6, 5, for each will have to bear his own load. Um, Normally, this verse would be connected to the verse right before it, where it talks about bearing the loads of other people. But there's so much to think about here when he says this, um, that I kind of wanted to start off today with this idea and connect it to the next passage. Um, I mean, to really grasp this, though, you do need to kind of look back um, at the things he's been talking about. Um, So if you go back one verse, it says, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So he's talking about how you look at other people and how you judge them and the fact that you shouldn't be doing that. Um, and so there's, he says, when you look at, at yourself, when you judge your life and you determine whether or not you are progressing in your sanctification, when you inspect yourself and say, am I, am I a more holy person today than I was five years ago, or last year, or a week ago. Am I, is there a progression? I mean, the book of James talks about how this is one of the evidences that, that you are a follower of Jesus, that you are becoming more like Him. And so when you look at yourself, how do you judge sort of your, 
journey, your spiritual, I hate the, the phrase spiritual walk, brother. Um, but how do, you, how do you sort of judge this? Well, um, so let me, let me illustrate the point with some fine art. Um, when, when you are judging sort of all of this, most people, the vast majority of people um, sort of look around. They look at everyone else around them and they say, well, look at all these people. I'm doing a lot better than a lot of them. Um, look at the things they're doing. Look at, the, look at the harm they're causing. Look at the oppression. Look at the, look at the movements they're a part of. None of it's very good. I, however, am different and I'm better. This is a very dangerous thing to do. Um, this, is, this is a great way to get way off track and to, and to puff yourself up. Um, and so uh, normally we look at other people, but Paul says, but le- let each one test his own work. Then let his reason to boast, then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. In other words, put yourself on the scale. Don't look at others. You look at yourself. When you look, um, when you are judging, like figuring out how to judge right and wrong, all this, um, put yourself on the scale. Look at, look at your own heart. You know better than anyone the heart with which you are moving through this world. You know better than anyone the secret prejudices and bitterness and um, sort of manipulating of your identity for other people so that they will see things that are not really there. Um, You know who you are. God knows who you are. Um, And it's, it's a lot easier for us to look around at everyone else around us because it's always easier to find someone who is not doing as well as you, isn't it? But he says, but you look at yourself. And then um, he, he, he talked about, so what do we do then when people fall? What do we do when, um, when, when people make decisions that are destructive and their sin, their lack of discretion, whatever, is exposed, as happens all the time? Um, well, what happens in the world is, is we just devour them. We point to them and make ourselves look better. Look how evil they are. And, and while doing this, we're taking people's eyes off of us and making us think that we're more holy because only the holy would pronounce the sin of others, right? Um, and so obviously, if we're pronouncing someone else's sin, I don't have that sin, so I can pronounce that. Um, and so this is what we do. Um, and, and, and then Paul describes it in verse 1 like this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him uh, in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. And so the idea here is that, um, no, we don't destroy them. We lift them up. We get down on their level. Um, we don't use them as a, as a sort of um, model of what we are not. He says we bear their burden. We get down on their level. We, we pick them up, and we do everything we can to bring about healing and restoration, restore him in a spirit of kindness and gentleness. And, and again, like I talked about a couple of weeks ago, the, the Greek word there is, is a word that means the mending of broken bones. It's this sort of medical term for we take part in the healing of those who fall. We don't point and distance ourselves from them. We get closer. We draw near. Um, and so there's this sort of dichotomy. We are here to bring resurrection to the lives of others, to heal them, to, to bring about whatever flourishing we can in their lives. And at the same time, in verse 5, for each of you will have to bear your own load. So not only are we here to bear the loads of other people, but also bear the loads of ourselves. Um, there is this sort of pushback against anyone who would say, well, we're all here to serve each other, so who's going to serve me? Who, who is going to look at me and say, well, here's what they need and important to me? There's always this looking out when it comes to what is my responsibility to the world? What is the world's responsibility to me? There's always this looking out. Um, 
and, and pushing outwards. Um, but he also has this warning that you yourself, first off, be careful lest you be tempted and fall. And the only way you can be careful so that you don't fall is to make sure you are bearing your own load. So the word here for load um, is this word fortion. It's, it refers directly in the first century to a pack that a soldier would carry, the things that he needs um, to defend himself, to build shelter, um, rations to eat, to stay healthy and full, um, <coughs> everything that you would need um, to be successful on the journey that you're on. And so Paul says there are things that you need to be successful to complete the mission that you have laid out before you. And you need to make sure you have those things. Your responsibility um, is to be full. Your responsibility is to have regular rituals of discipline and to train yourself. It is on no one else. It is on you. Um, We love to push it onto other people and say nobody's feeding me. Well, Paul would say that is your job to feed yourself. And he also is exhorting other people to reach out to you as well. But your responsibility in your mind is for yourself. Um, And so um, there's this sense in which you are responsible for your own spiritual journey, your daily regimen, your spiritual disciplines, um, learning to put your own experience of and and pain and joys in context with your spiritual journey towards God and others to to seek to understand God. Now, um, Paul writes all of this in the context of, I'm going to underline it right here, you who are spiritual. Should, so he's writing to a particular people who are spiritual people. That is his audience. Um, there is the assumption that followers of Jesus are spiritually minded people. I hope that's true. Um, and so he's writing to these people and said, you who are spiritual should work to restore him. And so um, there is a sense in which the spiritual people are ministering to people who are not spiritual, who are not followers of Christ, people who have fallen. And so instead of condemning their sin, we jump in and we get on their level and say, I have my own things. Um, I'm going to lift you up and bring you. And so in this situation, you are what would be called a spiritual leader. All right? If you are in some way in some sort of spiritual sort of mentorship over someone else, you are in spiritual leadership over them, and you as followers of Jesus are here to lead others to him. And so there is a sense in which each of us has someone that we are sort of looking to as I can pour into this person. And if, one important thing to remember, and so more drawings, if you are here to help someone who is laying in an awkward position, no, who's hurt, um, <laughs> best I can do. If you are here to help these people, then you have to understand. We've talked about this before. It's incredibly important to understand you are the medium. And what I mean is you are the tool. You are the one through which the gospel is flowing into them. You are the one through which um, the hope is coming. The the message of Christ um, is being filtered through. And the problem is dirty filters make dirty water. Okay? So like when... All this stuff is being filtered through you. It is being filtered through all of your bitterness and your bigotry and your pain and your anger, that stuff that you haven't addressed that needs to be addressed, your unforgiveness, your racism, your taking part in injustice, your um, broken relationships, um, your messed up theology. It's all flowing 
through that and into this other person. Um, and that is picked up on. People pick up on that. Whatever you are bringing into their presence, it all flows through you. It flows through your doubts, your problems, your strengths. Um, and whatever you're bringing into their presence, people pick up on that, even if it's subconscious. So we've all heard the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, it's, it's two people at sort of racial odds with each other. They don't like each other. And one person is hurt and on the ground and dying, and a person from the exact opposite, sort of the enemy race, if you will, is walking by and sees them and jumps into action. And this person is motivated by love. And that's why the story works. This person is not motivated by anything else but compassion and empathy and love. Not, they, they were not motivated um, by trying to pretend that they weren't racist. You know what I mean? We do this a lot. We manipulate our image of other people. And so we do things publicly so that other people will think we are something that we are not. In some way, we have an entire generation of people who are their own PR agent. And we run around trying to fashion an image of ourselves and we are completely dishonest in our motivations for why we do things. And oftentimes we sit and we question our own motivations for why we're doing things. Um, the, the Good Samaritan was not doing this to project an image for anyone who might see. The Good Samaritan was not doing this because of some religious or moral code. When people, uh, oftentimes people will, will go out and do things and they will, they will be obedient to something and help someone and give something to someone. And someone will ask, why do you do that? Well, God tells me to. The Bible says to. Honestly, that's not a great reason. The motivation is not law. The motivation is love. Scriptures tell us what it looks like when you're loving. But it's not about the deed. It's sort of a natural outflow. When you love people, you tend to live this way. You tend to feed the poor. You tend to care for the orphan and the widow. You tend to reconcile. You tend to forgive. We don't forgive because, well, God tells me I have to forgive you, so I, give you, I forgive you. Like, that's, that's not a good reason. That doesn't work. That's, that's actually meaningless. And the person who you are forgiving, I mean, that message of forgiveness is being filtered through that bitterness and that terrible religious theology. And they are receiving that, and they're saying, oh, well, that doesn't sound legitimate. That doesn't sound real. It doesn't sound genuine or authentic. Um, if you are not genuine in your love, in your actions, a movement towards them, they know. People understand that. At the basis of our holy living is love, not law. That's what this entire book has been about. That's what the entirety of, of Galatians has been about. Um, and here's the thing. Um, a lot of us tend to say, uh, well, the reason I do good things for other people is because, um, you know, I'm in debt to God, and so I do these things back. And I, like, it's, it's all about debt. So um, when when somebody sort of does something for you, you feel like somehow you're in debt. A lot of us run around constantly, um, and there's, there's just people in awkward positions everywhere, um, and we run around because they all sort of need, they all need help, right? And you can't open up Facebook without seeing 20 different, like, causes and hashtags that tell you, like, 
hey, all this stuff is wrong. What are you going to do about it? And there's an awful lot of people with the best intentions that run around just trying to fix all of it, and we end up completely exhausted and, and scared, and, and it, it's not good for us, and it's not healthy. And the problem is that you are the medium. If you are not healthy, and if you are exhausted, and if you are terrified, how can you possibly do anything for anyone? You can't. And so we run around saying yes to everything and we wear ourselves out and we make ourselves useless to the world that we are trying to heal and we don't practice any disciplines, we don't read anything, we don't spend any time in prayer and silence and meditation, we don't set aside time for pondering of the sacraments or the food that we eat or the unhealthy pace at which we're living. And, and because the problem is we tend to think, well, I have a little extra time, um, I, I, can't, I can't spend all that time filling myself up, doing anything for me, taking a day, I can't take a day off, I have to go over here now and help these people. Um, because people need all my time. We think that somehow we're like the Savior. And we're running around trying to like fix everything for everyone. And we're wearing ourselves out. Um, but here's the thing. If you were healthier, you would be more easily able to see what is causing the unhealth in other people. You would be more easily able to see how to help them. The reason Paul says to bear your own load is, is not, he's not telling you to be selfish. He's telling you it's for the good of everyone. You need to have in your life spiritual practices which are healthy, which fill you up. I mean, you don't think that, you don't think that if you weren't healthier spiritually and emotionally and if, if you weren't, your soul wasn't filled, if you weren't like maybe eating better and exercising and reading and filling your mind, if you weren't filling yourself up, you don't think that, that the time you spent doing these things would be better? I mean, the fact is, um, 15 hours spent pouring yourselves out for others um, in, in a state of exhaustion, in a state of um, panic, would be less effective than two hours pouring yourself out for them in a healthy state. Scriptures always give us encouragements to spend time in silence, prayer, and study, and rest. There's a reason there's a command for the Sabbath. There's a reason that we are commanded to let the, let the fields lie fallow. All of this speaks to something bigger, that in order for us to pour ourselves out, which is what we are here to do, you have to first be filled up. You have to find some way to be filled up. Um, and so one of the things that you need to do is you need to learn to live in a way so that it is healthy for other people to follow you. It's really important. Paul regularly talks about this. Paul says, um, like, in three or four different ways, and one of them he says very bluntly. He says, follow me as I follow Jesus. Paul, Paul was able to fill himself up in a way that he knew that he was healthy and that he could actually tell people, hey, just, if you're confused on what to do, just follow me. He was confident in that. How many of us would be able to say that? I want you, you, should, you should live like I do. I've, I've found a, a much better... Most of us um, are trying to look around at everyone else and how they're living and looking for that person who we can follow. Right? I mean, but the goal here in, in filling ourselves up and bearing our own load is living so that it's healthy for other people to follow us. Um, and then he sort of tries to put some of this into perspective here. And he says this in Galatians 6, 6. It says, let the one who is taught 
the word share all good things with the one who's teaching. Let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who's teaching. So there's somebody being poured into, and so there's someone pouring themselves out. And there's this reminder to the person who is being poured into to not always be in that position. Don't always be the needy one. Learn to fill yourself. Learn to grow and stand on your own feet. Learn to pour yourselves out for others. Um, and there's some important things um, to understand here. Um, the thing that, so we all have spiritual leaders in our life. We all have somebody who is pouring into us, um, whether it's somebody that we know and like in, 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 in person who physically knows us and pours into us, or maybe authors or podcast blogs, whatever. Um, there's somebody who we feel like when I spend time with them, they, I feel like they pour into me. Some of you, it's, it's a spouse. For some of you, it's maybe even your, one of your children. Um, for some of you, it's, um, it's a member of your family or a friend or a member of your church, your house church leader, an elder, whatever it is. There is someone who is pouring into your life and what you gleam from them is goodness and it's knowledge and it's wisdom. And the more time you get with them, the more you feel alive, right? So we all have these people. We all do. The things that you are gaining from them are things that they learned probably through great pain. Because anything that is really important and really wise and really good to learn is rarely learned on a cruise in the Bahamas. It's usually learned through loss, through what the early Christians called the dark night of the soul, um, through feeling pain, um, when they're talking to you about the presence of God, they're probably speaking from a place of understanding personally the absence of God. When they are talking to you about forgiveness, they're, they're probably talking to you about, um, like from a place where they had to experience forgiveness and what it did for them. So there's a lot of pain in the teaching that you are receiving. There's a lot of pain. Those people that are pouring into you, there's probably some history there and some journey there. And what they're doing when they're pouring into you is they're keeping you from having to learn things the way that they did. They're, they're giving it to you the easy way. All right? They are taking this pain and heartache that they've experienced and they said, so here's what I want you to know. Here's what I've learned in my life. Now, one of the problems with youth is that we tend to reject it. We tend to say, oh, that sounds pretty. That sounds nice. Um, I'll think about that. And then we end up having to learn it the same way that they do. But sometimes you are open to receiving sort of this life-giving wisdom from people who are pouring into you. And when you do, you are receiving um, a greater gift than just that wisdom. You're also receiving protection from the pain that they went through to learn that and to give it to you. Um, we picture Paul. There's a, a painting of Rembrandt's uh, Paul in prison. Um, one of the things I love about Rembrandt paintings, and maybe you never noticed it, is that, is that he's well known for his interplay of light and dark. His paintings are very, very dark. Um, I had to actually lighten this one up so it would even show up on our screen because, I don't know. Um, but it, they're, they're very, very dark, and then the subject in which he wants to focus is on is light. And it's, this, it's the darkness in the painting that makes the light subject so incredibly beautiful. And he's making a statement about what makes good things good is the presence of the darkness that is always there around it. Um, if everything was all light all the time, first off, that would be a lie. 
because life is not like that. Um, if everything was just bright and pretty, the impact is actually less so. I mean, I'm not going to knock Thomas Kincaid, but I'm trying to find a way to say that I'm not knocking Thomas Kincaid. Um, uh, because it's just not true. That's not life. What makes the good times in life good is the fact that you went through some dark times. What makes the really good moments in your marriage really good is that, is that you know that it could be and has been made far worse. What makes um, some embraces with your children much more meaningful is that there were times when that embrace seemed impossible right? There's dark, and it makes the light better. The light that you are receiving from the people that are pouring into you um, is surrounded, sort of, it comes from darkness. And that is being kept from you. You should recognize it. You should be thankful for it. I like how Eugene Peterson, the great Eugene Peterson, translates this passage because it's beautiful. He says, be very sure now, you who have been trained to a self-sufficient maturity, that you enter into a generous common life with those who have trained you, sharing all the good things that you have experienced, all, all the good things that you have and experienced. So he says, don't, don't always be being poured into. At some point, stand up tall, receive it, affirm it, and find some way with whatever experience you have, whatever good things you have, if it's, if it's physical, spiritual, if it's wisdom, whatever it is, pour back into them and pour out into others. You're not in debt to them. You don't have to do it because you're in debt. It's the same way that, that we interact with God. We don't owe God really anything. I mean, he's been clear the price has been paid. Um, and so good works and holy living are not debt that we're paying back it is actually the only appropriate response to the gifts that we've been given. We don't respond with goodness. We don't do good things in the world because we're in debt to God. We do good things because it is the appropriate thing to do for all the good things that we receive on a daily basis that we do not deserve. The gift of life and breath every single morning um, should prompt you to breathe life into others around you. It has nothing to do with debt. The problem is we have done a, a, a really sort of um, a really bad job of explaining this. It all has to do with our motivation, why we're doing what we're doing. It's not about law, it's about love. That's the entire book of, of Galatians. And so a couple weeks ago I was talking to somebody who was, he, he was talking to me about a lesson he taught to a Sunday school class. Some churches still do Sunday school. I was floored. Um, so a church, he was teaching a Sunday school class and he was talking about um, so when I, we do good things in this world. Here's what he was saying. When we do good things in this world, because when you do good things, you get more crowns and a bigger mansion on the other side when you die. And here's the stuff that he's saying. Everything in me, just to be silent, just to sit there and listen. Um, and he, and he, he's just talking about this. And so and some people are going to run around with, with no crowns and they're going to be terribly ashamed because there's no crowns. Um, no big gold thing. Um, no mansions, just tiny house um, on the other side after death in heaven. And, and so this is, this is how he's talking. And so this is his motivation for doing good. Now, I, hear me. This is never a message that the writers of Scripture intended for us to take from it, 
ever. That is not the intention that any writer in Scripture had for you to take. That life is about mansions and riches. Not even after death. I mean, it's, we love, as, as Christians, to rail against something that we call prosperity gospel, um, which is, in its own right, evil. Um, it, is, it is the proclamation, usually by somebody in a really nice suit with a nice car, who stands up there and says, hey, so if you... Um, it says here in, in, in whatever verse I just took out of context that if you, if you give, uh, empty your wallet into the bucket in the middle of the room, then God's going to give you back tenfold of what you did. And so people are going and mortgaging their houses and putting the money in, and the people um, who work in the inner circle of the organization are getting very, very rich. And usually the uneducated, poor people in the audience, um, because it's a show, I call it an audience, they are getting more and more um, into debt and in pain and then we take this prosperity gospel, which is, which is neither, and we send it, we export it to places like Africa, and, and the guy flies in on a Learjet, and they said, nice jet, where'd you get the jet? Well, Jesus gave me this jet. Oh, Jesus gave you that? I want to follow Jesus, and this is what we do. And then we drive these poor countries filled with just people and oppression and pain deeper and deeper into their oppression and their pain. And it's evil, and we all agree that that's evil. That's not the message of the gospel at all. The problem is, a lot of the message of Christianity has become sort of the same thing. It's about riches and wealth. But instead of before you die, it's after you die. Riches and wealth are not the point of scriptures at all. That is not the point. The currency of God is not the currency of us, the things that we like. Okay, the currency of God is love and grace and forgiveness and, and, and wholeness and purpose and identity and stillness and peace. Um, these are the things that God deals in, that God is giving out to this world. I know we like to call out to God when, um, when, we, when we want a parking space at the front of the mall um, and when we just want, um, like, to win the lottery or a new car. Um, and rest assured, anytime any good thing happens, um, I am thankful to God for it. But this is not what God, God's intention is not for you to be healthy and wealthy and any of this. That is not what life is about. God's intention for you is to be holy, loving servant of the kingdom of God. However that looks, with whatever you have been given. Um, and, and Paul does everything he can to make this point here. Here's what he says. Um, Galatians 6, 7 through 9. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I have heard countless times people stand up and take this passage way out of context and say, See? If you sow riches into the church, you're going to get riches back, and you're going to get rich. It's about money. Way out of context has nothing to do with what Paul said. Paul's actually literally saying the opposite here. And so let's open this up, and there's, there's three words that are very important to understand. The first one is mocked. God is not mocked. The word mocked is a great word. It's the word mictorizo. Mictor is a word for nose, um, and horizo means to determine or to decree. In other words, you're saying something with your nose. Now, that basically means you're turning your nose up in order to declare something less than or n I'm not interested. 
I turn my nose up. I guess this gesture has been done for thousands of years, even back in their day, all right? So this gesture of like, like I'm not interested, I'm not into it. Like that's always been like kind of a, oh, okay, whatever thing. Um, God is not mocked. If you turn your nose up to the things of God, the things that God is offering, the things that God has for you, the spiritual things, if you turn your nose up because there's better things to you, like the things that we make, riches and mansions and crowns. Uh, think about that for a second. So countless times in scriptures, you know, when it talks about the crowns, it says, what do we do with the crowns? Oh, you take them off and you give them to the feet of Jesus. Why? Because I don't need this, right? Like it belongs, it's, it's yours. It belongs here. And then we have gold. What are we going to do with all this gold? I don't know, just drop it. And now the streets are paved with gold. It's just everywhere. And we have these pearls. What are you going to do with the pearls? Uh, well, normally you would put up a gate to, to protect them. Let's just put them on the outside of the gate. We don't need them. We have what we need. We have spiritual things. Like this is the whole idea of the kingdom, that we don't need all these things. And the kingdom is not some far off thing later when you're dead. It's now, it's here. You can begin to live that here now. More on that in a minute. Um, so turning your nose up to the things of God, um, let's focus in on what I'm going to underline here. It says in verse eight, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Corruption is this word phthora, um, to shrivel wither, spoil, ruin, uh, deprave, corrupt, defile. It's a word that was used to describe like foods that were left out and they went bad. Um, or like a building made of wood that is being eaten by termites and deteriorating. Um, sort of a writing of parchment that is disintegrating and you can't read it anymore. It's physical, tangible things. They fall apart. Scientists say that if we actually were to um, if all humans were to just disappear from the world right now, in about 300,000 years, there would be zero evidence that we were ever here. You wouldn't know. And they've mapped out, like, first, within a couple of days, within two or three days, all power will be out in the entire world, except for probably water. Hydropower would go for another probably five weeks and then go, and then slowly things would just start crumbling and deteriorating as nature claims it all back. And the things that we make... They disintegrate, they fall apart, they deteriorate. And so he says, if you sow to these things that deteriorate, you will from the flesh reap things that fade. You will reap things that will not stick around. So the idea here is it's, it's there, there will never be enough money. You know that, right? There'll never be enough money for you. You'll never be like, oh, I made enough, I'm done. There will never be enough sexual exploits to where you'll be like, that was great, I'm done. Met that need. There will never be, um, there will, there will never be enough power, obviously. You'll always want more. Um, and you'll go higher and higher trying to get more and more power because you'll never be content with the power that you have. The problem is the moment you even get that money, even if there was enough money to get, the moment you get it, it starts going out starts falling apart, disappearing. The moment you attain power is the moment it starts being taken from you. It, it's the moment everyone starts taking shots at you and, and, and it all starts to fall apart. Um, whatever it is that you're looking for, you're searching for it in the things of the flesh, the moment you get it, it starts to deteriorate. You finally get this thing. You build your empire that you wanted and you hold it in your hands and it just begins to instantly fall apart. The second you get it, it begins to deteriorate because that's what it, it's all doing. So if you sow to the flesh, do not be surprised when you get it and it begins to fall apart and it corrupts. 
And then we look here. Um, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now, for about 100 years or so, this has only been interpreted really one way by the evangelical church. It, it has mostly been um, a description of what happens after you die, like it, and they describe it as like 24-hour periods over and over and over and over and over. Um, that's, it is, that is a misunderstanding of this phrase. Um, it's not against that definition. It's sort of included in, in the right definition. The right definition, um, eternal, is this word ionios. Ion means ages. Eos means pertaining to. And so it's sort of it's, it's pertaining to things that are ageless. Um, ageless life, if you will. The things that have always been valuable, the things that always will be valuable, the things that, that once you attain them, they do not slip away. Um, and so we sow to the Spirit, we draw closer to God and others towards, uh, towards love and gracefulness, towards the redemption and reconciliation of all things to God. And when we do, we receive things which will not begin fading away and deteriorating once we get them. It's a life that does not shrivel away. It's full of things that do not fade. There is eternal living. And eternal living, um, eternal life, I, eternal life doesn't start like later. It starts like now. The kingdom of God is at hand. You can begin receiving these gifts of the Spirit, these fruits of the Spirit now. It is, it is sort of this other, like you, you've been living by the flesh and then you step and you become a follower of Jesus. You become what, the, what scriptures earlier in, in, uh, in the book of Galatians calls uh, I think it was Peter, uh, born again. And so you, you sort of wake up into this other flow which you've been missing out of and you start taking part in that. And you realize that what you are now living for is much bigger, much better, much more fulfilling. And when you achieve it, it doesn't begin to fade. In fact, it begins to grow and stay. And it, it is what you were intended to receive and live by. It, it is a completely different way of living. Um, and so the way you live, you're either pouring into the flourishing of your soul or the deterioration of it. And so when Paul starts this passage with God is not mocked, what is he saying? Well, he says God is not mocked, and then he gives a reason. He says because whatever one sows, that's what he will reap. In other words, God is not mocked means we all reap appropriately. You cannot spend your life trying to get money and then find joy. Because joy is the currency of God and money is not. You can use whatever money you have to pour out for the world around you and that can bring about joy because that's actually sowing to the Spirit. So that helps us understand how to use our money. You cannot spend your life um, using people for whatever you want to use them for and end up having really great filling relationships. Why? Because God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. You reap appropriately. You cannot spend your life striving for power and then find contentment when you get there because it will begin to corrupt and fade away. You cannot sow to the flesh and reap the things of the Spirit because God is not mocked. That is not the way things work. This is not a message about karma at all. This is a message about why you are living your life, what you are striving for. We all say we want happiness, right? We all say we want joy. What are you doing in, in pursuit of that? Where are you sowing sort of these seeds to find fulfillment 
and purpose and meaning. You cannot sow to the flesh and find love. You cannot sow to the flesh and find blessings and grace. God is not mocked. And so when Paul starts this passage with God is not mocked, he's pointing out the fact that you can't sow into one area of your life and expect the spiritual side to be fed along with it. If you turn your nose up to the spiritual things, the eternal things, you will not find the flourishing and the abundance. Um, the, big, the big idea here is that we all reap appropriately. It's, and, and the Scriptures were not just written to individual people. They were written sometimes to groups, communities, sometimes to nations. Um, and so this is for all of us. We collectively will reap what we sow. Um, when the church sows to fame or power, when we strive for these things, we should not be surprised when the moment we attain all the power we've ever dreamed of, it starts to slip away and corrupt us. It will happen. It always has happened. And then you end up with scars on the church, like the Crusades. This is how we destroy ourselves. Instead, instead of pouring our money into earthly power and politics and industry, things that fail, we pour our money into kingdom works, ministries that lift people up, that mend families. Um, we pour our money into churches and missions work. Uh, we pour our money into things that, like adoption and foster care ministries, into helping people uh, with counseling and help them become better mothers and fathers and husbands and wives. Um, we become caretakers and protectors. We speak truth to power. We move towards the outcasts and the rejects of society to make sure that they know that they are unconditionally loved. That is where we sow. And when we do this, we begin to bear spiritual fruit. And, and then things start to get really good. And joy begins to flow. And we all begin to find ourselves filled by the presence of God. But in order to do any of this, you yourself have to learn to be healthy. You cannot skip the step of sanctification in your own life. You cannot, it, it cannot be skipped. You cannot go straight from um, awakening to the understanding of, of Christ and the message of, that he is offering f- of salvation for the world and then jump right into like changing the world from there. There is a process in which you should allow yourself to be poured into, to learn, to grow, and then become sort of in common life um, with the church, with, your, with the people who are pouring into you. Um, and learn to feed yourself so that you can feed others. Otherwise, you just tend to become a mess and a drain and a burden. I've, there's been lots of times where I've, I've stood up here and I've said, hey, uh, so there's like lots of you in here. I've, I've talked one morning to, there was 700 people here and there was like nobody back there serving the kids' rooms. And I was like, um, it's great to learn. Learning's fun, and good for you. But what happens is if you, if you intake too much and you never like expel, expel any energy, you get real fat. Um, and that tends to happen spiritually. We tend to sit and receive and receive and receive and receive and receive and we never serve and we never give. We never do anything for anyone else other than receive and sit back and say, man, I feel full. And the next week, man, I feel even more full. Well, bro, you're going to explode. You need to serve. You need to get out, you need to, you need to jump in and help and give and, and do something. 
That's what Paul's saying. I imagine Paul was exhausted. Um, And he's fighting battles that he never started because his people were not standing up on their own and, and, and being filled and being rich, right? And living for the wrong things. And so he ends this passage like this. He says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Um, always go, always do. If, if you get the option to serve and help somebody, help somebody in something, yes, do it. Do it. Um, but make sure your daily ritual, that your way of filling yourself up is, is that it works, that it's good. Um, there's a book I always recommend for those of you who are sort of new to the faith or, or um, new to sort of uh, watermarker where you are now. Um, there's a, uh, my favorite book of all time, uh, The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. I always encourage that book because it really helps ground us in, in sort of the disciplines of faith and how we are supposed to um, daily live our lives and how we are to be filled. And it's all kinds of great practices in there. So read that book. Um, also, Sacred Journey. Um, Thomas something something, I forget. Um, I don't know. There's, that's what Google's for. Um, so I don't have to remember everything. So uh, we're going to move towards a time of communion. Um, communion is the picture of, uh, of the gospel. Um, if you want me to summarize Christianity, what it means, it's summed up right here in the simple thing of communion. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you so that you could find healing and be fed for the salvation of the world. And so Christianity... It's kind of a 2,000-year-old conversation about what the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ means for us today. And each generation sits around and talks about what does the resurrection mean for us here? What is broken that needs to be fixed? Um, where is God leading us? Um, what is God doing? How can we take part in it? That's what this is. And so that's what we do every week here. Um, our community service, you guys can spread around the room. Um, we're going to spend some time in communion. It's very simple. There's two elements. There's... Here's the bread. It's the body of Christ broken for you. The, uh, the wine is the blood of Christ spilled for you. And uh, it's, it's nothing weird. It's nothing mystical. It's symbolic. It's meaningful. Um, we all come to the table with all of our pains and our doubts and our bitterness and our envy and greed and our unholiness. And we come to the table and we are all fed the same. Body of Christ broken for you. Blood of Christ spilled for you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Guide us. Change us. Help us to learn to live for eternal things. We always want to twist your ways and your teachings into making it about earthly riches. Help us to wake up when we are doing that. Help us to see that that is not the intention. Help us to deal with your currency, to spread that, to receive it, to spread it. Help us to be healthy, holy people. Let us be uh, lights in dark places. Guide us. Change us. In your name, amen.